You're listening to Nonprofit Confidential, episode number four. Hey guys, welcome to Nonprofit Confidential. This is the show that's all about sharing compelling stories from the talent behind exceptional nonprofit organizations. I'm your host, Sheila Nimishikavi, and I'm the founder of Third Suite, which is a consulting firm specializing in early stage and small to mid-size nonprofit organizations. Here, it is my job to tease out actionable tips, tricks, and hacks from nonprofit organizations and share them with you. Our episode last week featured Ann McDonald. She's the executive director of the Brain Injury Association of Virginia. Our wide-ranging conversation took us through her nonprofit journey, which started off in the hospital setting as an occupational therapist, to now serving as the leader of a statewide organization. We discussed making the transition from program staff to administration, succession planning, management tips, and so much more. Please check it out. Better yet, hit the subscribe button so you can get an alert every time we release a new episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Third Suite's course, Nonprofits for Newbies. This course is great for people who are new to the nonprofit field. It provides you with the right knowledge and tools so you can skip over those beginner mistakes and have the most impact in your role. This three-hour course is split up into three modules. As a bonus, Third Suite is offering students an exclusive invitation to join a private Facebook group where you can chat with Third Suite consultants as well as your peers. I'll go live on the group every month to answer questions you have along the way and to make sure you've implemented all you've learned. Head on over to thirdsuite.com and exclusive for listeners, use promo code nonprofitconfidential, that's one word, to receive 10% off. Okay, let's dive right into my conversation with Adria Scharf. Adria is the executive director of the Richmond Peace Education Center. In this episode, we talk about engaging youth, conflict resolution, handling controversial topics with finesse, and so much more. Adria, thank you so much for being here with me. I'm really excited to learn more about your programs and how the Peace Education Center has been able to achieve so much success. Can you tell us a little bit about RPEC, its um, its mission, its programs, what the vision is? Thank you so much, Sheila, for the opportunity. I'm always so happy to talk about the Richmond Peace Education Center. The Richmond Peace Education Center has been a presence in Richmond, Virginia for 38 years, since 1980. And we are a voice of conscience in the community. Our mission is to build more peaceful, more just and equitable and more inclusive communities. And really our primary area of program focus right now is empowering youth to be leaders for peace and community change. But the Peace Center really has a broader mission. Its roots lie in the anti-war movement and the Peace Center way back in the day was founded in the aftermath of the Vietnam War by people who felt committed to creating a force for nonviolence in the Richmond community. And in the early years, the Peace Center was focused more on international issues, on questioning war and militarism. And to this day, the Peace Center continues to speak out on those issues, and we never hesitate to shy away from questioning war and engaging in activism. 
But day to day, you know, really what we are doing is working to solve urgent local community issues. We're working to build a much more just and inclusive and peaceful Richmond region, a much more equitable Richmond region. And we're working to empower both young people and adults to be equipped to, to build that change. Wonderful. Thank you. Can you go into a little bit about your background, you know, maybe where you're from and the education that you've had and you know, how do those experience, how do those experiences draw you to this particular work? You know, for me, I feel so blessed to work in an organization where I'm able to express the values that I have held so dearly for my entire life and my entire professional career. And for me, I think my connection to this work starts so early because my family is a family that was very much affected by persecution and war and and anti-Semitism. And my grandparents were Jewish war refugees who fled the Nazis on one side of my family. And I think very early on, you know, in my earliest childhood, I learned about the dangers of oppression and the way that societies can turn against vulnerable people. And I learned very early on the importance of speaking up for one another and standing together with the marginalized. And I think for me, you know, the roots of this work just are, are very old and connected to my family story. And in terms of my, my professional work, I've had a kind of a nonlinear um, path, but I got a doctorate in sociology and I've always done a lot of activism, both working on economic justice issues and housing issues. And for me, when I arrived here in Richmond, Virginia, um, and discovered this beautiful little organization, the Richmond Peace Education Center, I just felt like I immediately understood the mission. I felt immediately connected to the mission. And I think for me, my background, both in terms of my personal story, but also in terms of my history of doing economic justice work and poverty work, connects very much locally to the work that we're doing in every aspect of the community to advance peace and justice. I love it. Wow, that's really cool that your personal story, your professional story, all of it really combines to make you such a strong leader of this organization. (laughs) So, you know, peace is, it's such a broad word. And, you know, it has different meanings to different people. So how do you narrow the definition down so that you can engage your community in a way that's not only meaningful to them, but also furthers the work that you're trying to do? It's so true, Sheila. Peace is a broad word. And it's interesting to me thinking about the English language, how we have such a rich vocabulary to talk about violence and war and aggression and trauma. But I feel like we have too limited a vocabulary to talk about. Oh, that's so true. But we, we talk about peace in a couple different ways to try to make it concrete for people. On the one hand, I sometimes talk about peace for the Peace Center as both like an end and a means. So it's both peace is both the outcome that we're seeking to achieve, but for us as the Peace Center, we're also committed to peace being the way that we get there. So we're committed to a much more peaceful, saner world and, and Richmond community, one that is much freer of violence, one in which people are living much more in harmony and in healthy relationship to one another, a community that is much freer of oppression and pain. On the other hand, we also see peace as the means, so we're very committed to seeking to unite the community and achieve those ends in nonviolent ways, so to go about our work in a way that um, avoids inflicting harm and avoids... Do you know what I mean? Avoids causing harm to others. We draw on a number of different peace traditions in our work. So one probably 
most centrally is obviously the civil rights kind of Kingian and Ella Baker tradition in the civil rights movement of, mm-hmm. you know, seeking justice in a way that is nonviolent. Um, our work is also informed by Gandhi's movement and the idea of Satyagraha, the idea of Ahimsa from the Gandhian and Hindu tradition, which is the idea of non-harm. So we draw on a variety of different traditions and our members come from lots of different faith and secular traditions, including Buddhism and Judaism and Christianity, among many, many others, Islam. And, you know, everybody who's a member of the organization kind of brings their own history and traditions of piecework into the space. So when we're actually doing piecework in the community, we try to make it very concrete. For example, when we are teaching a conflict resolution workshop, we teach people extremely concrete, useful techniques that they can actually use in their day-to-day work and relationships and their community work to enable them to communicate, to collaborate, to work together in ways that are peaceful. So for example, we teach people very simple self-calming techniques because the foundation of engaging peacefully in this work is to be able to regulate one's own responses and one's own emotions in the context of a disagreement. And so we teach people very basic kind of inner inner skills and interpersonal skills, including um, calm down skills like deep breathing. So taking three deep breaths when you are in an anxiety-producing situation. We teach people something that we called active listening for de-escalation, which is a very simple communication listening tool that you can use with your partner or spouse or your best friend or with somebody that you're in a serious disagreement with. And that is the very simple idea of active listening. So it's the idea that when somebody is coming at you in a spirit of anger or a spirit of aggression, to listen underneath that surface emotion for that person's underlying needs and values, and then to reflect that back to that person. So this active listening for de-escalation is a technique that you're, you don't use in a situation where you're actually in danger. It's rather in a situation where you have enough of a relationship of trust and you want to de-escalate a hot conflict into a cool conversation so that you can stay in dialogue and work through it together. We use role play activities and we use lots of practice to help equip people with simple skills like that that they can use in their day-to-day um, life. Yeah, I love that. So that those are really great techniques that, you know, would apply to people even just in the workplace. You know, you have a disagreement with your coworker or, you know, maybe you made a mistake and your boss is coming after you for something, but these are really good ways to calm down in the moment and to, um, you know, take a step back, but still be able to engage in constructive conversation. That's really great. And I love how the Peace Education Center kind of looks at peace on a larger scale, but then also on the day-to-day. Like, peace isn't this vague, you know, idea of, like, a future where everyone is, like, you know, a perfect utopian future. It's every day doing the work, living a peaceful life, and, you know, actively practicing peace to or in order to get there. Love it. So how does RPEC navigate controversial subjects? So thinking back over the last several years, we often do navigate controversial subjects. Um, I'm thinking about the time during the American war in Iraq, when the Peace Center for many years was standing against the war. We took a stance that 
that war was unnecessary and that it was causing terrible harm both to Iraqis and to American troops. And we argued that American involvement in Iraq had the potential of actually destabilizing the entire country and and uh, the entire region. Um, at the time, those stances that we took were very controversial and were considered fringe peacenik perspectives. <laughs> it's been interesting that over time, the much broader consensus has come around to our side. So the perspective that we took criticizing the war at the beginning of the war now really is mass public opinion. But one thing at that time that we did and we really tried to do throughout the Iraq war was we we hosted an exhibit called the Eyes Wide Open exhibit, which was a display of combat boots representing um, Virginian GIs who had been killed um, in Iraq. And the display also included um, civilian shoes representing a portion of the Iraqi civilians who had been killed. And the civilian shoes were tagged with the name and age of um, the Iraqi civilians. And we, together with our local Richmond Friends meeting, we made this exhibit available all across the state for many, many years. And it was really a way of humanizing people who were being harmed by American overseas activities. And so rather than making an ideological argument um, or yelling and screaming, it was a really powerful and emotion-provoking way of humanizing those being harmed by the violence of war. And we would um, make it available around the state and different communities would host the exhibit and would lay out this giant, you know, field of boots and civilian shoes. And passerby would literally almost stumble upon them and would be kind of forced to confront the pain and the trauma um, of this tragedy. And so it was really a strategy of humanization. So it was a strategy of navigating a controversial subject by humanizing those, those harmed mm-hmm. um, and by yeah. connecting to hearts as well as to, to minds. Yeah, I love that because it takes something that could be an ideological argument to which someone can say, you know, argue against it, but instead makes it a human story where, you know, it's hard to argue with someone that a life isn't important. <laughs> so that that is a really great way of dealing with a controversial subject. Okay. And I know you guys did, did a lot of work recently um, here in Richmond where um, Monument Avenue had a lot of the Civil War monuments and there was a move to take down those monuments. Could you talk a little bit about the work you guys did there? Sure, yeah. Richmond, Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy, and we do have a long street called Monument Avenue that has giant statues uh, commemorating the Confederate war figures who led the Confederate side. And the Peace Center has taken a stance this year in favor of removing the monuments, starting with Jefferson Davis, We issued a call describing our vision. We met with the Monument Avenue Commission, and we convened an array of board members and and other members of our organization to speak to the issue of Monument Avenue from their own perspectives and to share those perspectives with the Monument Avenue Commission. And in our view, We understand that some folks feel deeply connected to these monuments, but in our view, they represent a form of cultural violence and they convey to Richmond's African-American children that our society um, continues to 
revere people who fought to enslave their ancestors. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. So I love that. It's, it's a different take on a controversial topic, um, but it kind of shows the breadth of strategies that you have to use in order to get your message across. So sometimes it's, it's an exhibit and showing the human side of, of conflict, and other times it's taking it straight to the commission to say, this is how we feel, this is you know the message that you're conveying when you have these monuments up on a Monument Avenue. So great, that's really cool. And you know, throughout all of these all of these conflicts and all the work that you guys are doing, you're engaging youth throughout the whole process, which I think is is really cool. So how do you engage youth in difficult conversations? And what do you think has made ARPEC so successful in doing that? Um, and along those lines, do you have tips for other organizations that may seek to work with youth? We do. I really think our work with youth is the best thing we do, and it's the area of our programming where I really see the traction and I really see the progress. And I hear the testimonials of the young people who've been through our programs, and I hear them saying that they, you know, found their voice, you know, through working with the Richmond Peace Education Center. And and uh, we have a very intentional approach to working with youth regionally. Um, the Richmond region, like so many other regions across the country, is a region that is deeply divided between the city and the surrounding county suburbs. It's an area, it's a region with a lot of racial trauma and a lot of economic inequality. And part of the purpose of our working regionally with young people is to bring young people together across many of these cultural and economic and racial divisions to give them opportunities to learn from one another in a spirit of empathy, learn one another's stories, equip them to be conflict resolution trainers in the community and work together with kids from different backgrounds um, for a more peaceful uh, community. Um, We have a deeply respectful approach to our work with youth. We work with kids from all backgrounds, including some very high poverty communities. And we just deeply believe that every young person has wisdom, has a voice, has talents, has a role, a constructive role to play in their community. And part of the problem is that there's insufficient creative opportunities and outlets for them to express themselves positively and creatively. And so most fundamentally, we are deeply affirming of every young people, every young person we work with, including our quote unquote non-traditional leaders or our youth who maybe don't see themselves as potential leaders or who have never been told by the adults in their lives that they have the potential for leadership. We see every last one of them as, as, as being leaders and having a voice that's important. And uh, we have what's called a positive youth development model, which is just what I've been saying. It's just the idea that rather than looking at kids from a prism of deficiency, like you have deficits that we have to fill, rather it's really identifying, you know, Mm -hmm. their resources, their skill, their potential talents, Um, training them in a number of modalities. We train our teenagers in our conflict resolution curriculum. We also have a program now that is um, working with... uh, our young people teaching them some other skills, including drumming and yoga, and uh, giving them a variety of techniques to express themselves positively and be a force for change. The teenagers that we work with then um, become equipped conflict resolution trainers and discussion leaders. So they, after working with us for many months and getting lots of mentorship and practice, they become equipped to actually lead discussions on behalf of the Peace Center in the community with other youth. So, for example, this weekend, tomorrow, we are hosting a youth dialogue on gun violence 
where some of our youth leaders um, who happen to live in a public housing project in Richmond are going to be co-hosting a youth dialogue for teenagers from all across the Richmond region focused on the question of gun violence. And our young teens have been trained and equipped in a number of different discussion leading techniques. They'll be partnered with an adult program leader, but they will in large part be leading this discussion with a group of other young people um, from all over. And that's just one example of um, the great work that we're doing with with teenagers. Um, But I think having that fundamental belief in young people, affirming their culture and their background, and remembering that every young person has talent and has a potential um, to be a leader, I think is just the foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's great because, you know, as you're describing that, what I was hearing was you're assuming leadership potential and assuming competence and they're going through this training and they're learning and expressing themselves. And then after that, they're then given the opportunity to then lead. And almost it's almost, you know, it's like as much as they're leading the discussion and that's fantastic. They're also proving to themselves that they are leaders. So that's a really great, um, that's a wonderful tip, I think, for um, organizations that may want to work with youth is, you know, assume competence let them learn it and then let them, you know, go out and experience what you've trained them in and let them show their, show their leadership. Right. That's great. And with a lot of, with a lot of support, we're of right course, there yeah. behind them. We're right there behind them for some time. Um, yes, definitely. Sometimes it takes a few years, but it's incredible to see a young person evolve, you know, from sixth grade to 12th grade. Wow. That's really cool. In their, in their confidence. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, do you ever, how do you get youth to be involved to begin with? Like, how do you overcome, especially when you think about the, the cohort that you're working with, they're teenagers. So how do you get them past the whole, like, oh, I don't want to do that, or, you know, kind of, they'd rather be out with their friends, they'd rather play video games. How do you get them to do this type of work? It is so true. It is a challenge. We have really good connections to a variety of schools and other youth agencies that we partner with and get referrals from. We try to make all of our programming super fun and engaging. We always have pizza or snacks. <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> um, but I, you know, we certainly find that we that it can be a challenge, and kids also just get really busy, and there's sports and there's yes. cheerleading. And, yeah. Um, those who are college bound, you know, have all of the academic pressures. But I think for us, I think for us, making sure that it's fun that we are creating a really safe unique space where young people can get vulnerable with one another Mm -hmm. and build a trusting relationship both with their peers and with adult program staff I really think that as much as pizza is an incentive I really think it's just that quality of like the trust and the sense of community that brings the young people back um yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely we're, we're constantly you know, having to be in a mode of like constant recruitment and right. all of that for prospective <laughs> participants, and it, it is work. But once they experience what we offer, um, we tend to have a core group that really stays and stays for a long time. Yeah, and then do they go and like recruit their friends potentially? Often, yeah, yeah. yeah. This yeah. spring at the middle school right across the street, we started an after-school program, and we had two program leaders who had been trained who were eighth graders. And we told them, if you can, you know, if you can recruit other students for an after-school club, you can lead that club. And they, you know, spread the word and brought back an entire room full of boys who then met (laughs) every week for the entire spring semester. 
and the entire process was led with with adult program support by these two older students. So it was basically two youth leaders, you know, leading an after school club for their peers, and it was completely, you know, their own recruitment work. That, that yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. And that's again just like another layer of leadership. That's really great. So can you, talking a little bit about, or thinking a little bit about the conflict resolution program, can you talk a bit about the history of the program? And um, I know it has its roots in Rwanda and Burundi, um, with two of the facilitators actually going to Burundi and studying this. Can you talk about conflict resolution and this idea of healing communities? Sure. The Peace Center... um does conflict resolution programs all over the community. We, on the one hand, we have kind of a nuts and bolts introduction to conflict resolution curriculum that we used, that we use all over in schools and social service agencies. We are doing conflict resolution trainings in several universities in the area. Um, We worked with the housing authority all last year. That curriculum is all about training people in just day-to-day basic skills for resolving conflict, managing anger, communicating, listening, conflict role-playing for use in the workplace, for use in their day-to-day lives, for use in their communities. We have a second, deeper trauma healing-focused program called Healing and Rebuilding Our Communities that you referenced. And that program is actually a four-weekend-long trauma healing immersion. And it is a curriculum developed in Burundi and Rwanda. It was developed in the 1990s in the aftermath of the genocide in that region. And incredibly, a member of our program staff and one of our lead program leaders traveled to Burundi and immersed themselves fully in this curriculum and have brought the curriculum back to Central Virginia. And we now offer this profound trauma healing program that again was developed in the aftermath of genocide Mm -hmm. here in Virginia and healing and rebuilding our communities it's it's based on the idea that in the aftermath of the horrific pain and violence of genocide you can in fact heal repair trust and equip communities to reunite and move forward together And it is a trust-based, community-based model. So we convene community members who've been affected by trauma or violence, and we take them through a four-step process where they build trust within the group, they share their stories, they affirm one another's stories. And um, over time, they, um, through the process, heal together from the trauma, or at least begin to heal from the trauma. Wow, that's really fascinating and just so cool that you have people who literally went to Africa, learned the program from the source, (laughs) and are able to come back and now teach it to our community here. Um, But also just thinking about this idea of healing communities and thinking about the work that nonprofits do. If you're struggling with trauma yourself, um, you you kind of need to heal in order to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, learning, learning this curriculum, I think would be so amazing for everyone working in nonprofits. Um, and also just this idea of gaining trust. You know, if you're working in a human services organization, you need to ensure that the people you intend to serve actually trust you to offer those services and actually going to trust you as a source, um, to even ask for help. So I love that you guys are spreading this message throughout, throughout the area. Very cool. So, 
I know the organization was founded, you know, after around the time of the Vietnam War. And since then, there's just been so much change in terms of the issues that have come up, but also just how to communicate. There's so many platforms now, you know, with social media and, you know, everything that comes with that. (laughs) How have you evolved with the changing times? Um, In terms of communication technology, I sometimes feel like we're a year behind all of the trends, uh, but we do our best. Um, Honestly, we just in the past decade, it's just been astonishing. Right, it's crazy. You know, of Facebook eight years ago and now a million other uh, social media platforms. We also work so intergenerationally, we actually find that we have to maintain multiple different communication vehicles, you know, one to address our baby boomer founding generation who really still like getting print mailings from us right? um, or traditional email from us, um, sort of our Generation X, you know, Mm -hmm. Instagram and Facebook um, (laughs) communicators um, and members. And then our younger folks, millennials and teenagers have their own universe of social media platforms (laughs) that I can't even begin to understand. But we find that it's really important on our communication committee, which oversees our communication strategies, to have a multi-generational mix of folks, including younger folks mm, who have I their pulse on the new technology we we this coming year are are um, going through an actual assessment of our overall communication so we're every couple of years needing to step back and look at what we're doing and reassess and for an organization of our small size I won't lie to you it can be challenging you know yeah. what I mean to build yeah. up a set of processes around one particular set of technologies we you know got really great at Facebook and then boom kind of <laughs> you know there were 10 other new platforms we needed to figure out um, so we're having to get some outside expertise we're having to convene a very multi-generational group of oversight experts to advise us and um, it's just a constant it's just just a constant process. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No I love on your heels. Yeah. I, I love that you have an advisory group of mm-hmm. that's multi-generational. That's so important. That's great. So kind of thinking along those lines, um, you know, RPEC has literally grown so much under your leadership. And I'm kind of switching gears, I guess, to get more into the practice aspect. How did you do it? <laughs> and what advice do you have for other nonprofits or first-time executive directors? Thank you, Sheila, for that. When I when I first joined the staff of the Peace Center, it was in late 2005. So I can't believe it's been almost 13 years. <laughs> when I first joined the staff, I think the budget was like $50,000 a year. It no way. It was really <laughs> just a tiny, mostly volunteer-run organization. And We took steps to just think intentionally about our programming, and we started, we realized that we had the kernel of something really important in our youth program, that we had already started doing some beautiful work with teenagers, and I think I recognized quickly that that was an area that I think would draw a lot of community support and had the potential to draw some grant funding. And we became more strategic and intentional in crafting and articulating that program, articulating a logic model with inputs and outcomes and Mm -hmm. being able to really justify our funding requests more convincingly. Collecting outcome data and testimonials from youth and parents and youth program staff that we were working with to speak to the impact um, is incredibly important in 
in conveying the power of the work you're doing and drawing more support. We also, in the early years, just planted a bunch of different flowers in terms of um, getting ourselves out there in the community, launching new creative programs, and just making ourselves a little bit more visible. And it just becomes this beautiful feedback loop of making yourself more visible, putting yourself out there more, attracts more attention, attracts more support. And the Peace Center has been so fortunate to have a grassroots funding base of about 300 individuals who give to us annually. For the most part, our funders and supporters are not wealthy, so the average donation is quite small. But we have done a pretty good job of retaining those longtime supporters and then building out, you know, a good number of, of uh, new uh, donors who feel attracted to our mission and support the work. So we've increased our individual giving and we've increased our grant funding considerably. We also have grown one big fundraising event. It's a big dinner and auction to uh, raise some money that way. And then maybe most importantly is our program income. We offer some of our services fee-for-service. So we found over time, as our name recognition has grown, that more and more entities in the Richmond community are interested in actually paying us to do our conflict resolution and trauma healing programs. Mm -hmm. And I love that kind of income. You know what I mean? Because it's like an expression of the community's thirst for the work you're doing and their willingness to pay. Now, thanks to our grant money, we are also able to offer a lot of our programmings for free so that we're able to serve those communities most in need who might lack funding. Mm -hmm. Um, But our fee-for-service income is another important income stream for us. And, um, you know, we've grown considerably, but I feel like we've just scratched the surface. And I actually feel like we have much more potential to grow both programmatically and in terms of our community support. And we're you know, I feel like our individual donor base could be twice the size that it is, you know, and we are just seeking to spread the word and to attract more support, you know, every year. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I especially love the part where you mentioned that you really took the time to develop a strong case for the work that you guys are doing. And it can be difficult to, you know, attain any kind of support, whether it's volunteers, whether it's monetary, to if you can't actually indicate what service your organization is providing um, and what the outcomes of that service is. So really taking the time to critically think through that is, is really cool. And it's not just, you know, I need to get a grant, let me write this logic model. It's really what are we doing? What value are we adding to the community? So yeah, it, it definitely seems like, looking, you know, kind of thinking through that, it was a logical progression, really, of, you know, (laughs) you joining the organization, talking through, thinking through what the outcome is, and seeing that growth occur over time. Very nice. So, I guess one question I do have is, what does it take to run a program of the Peace Education Center. So, for instance, you're working with youth who, you know, may have had dealt with a lot of adversity, who may be living in housing projects. Um, I mean, this is difficult work. <laughs> so what type of, what, what do you look for when you hire? What type of personality mm-hmm. traits do you think it takes to be successful doing the work that you guys do? Yeah. It goes back to that core value of compassion and respect for the youth that we serve. And, you know, our program leaders go into a youth program with an agenda in mind. However, if the youth in the room have a really urgent situation that they feel like they need to talk about, something that happened to them last night, a shooting in their neighborhood, you know, something, a crisis... 
our program leaders will basically suspend a portion of the agenda to allow time to create that space to process in the safe space with the young people. Um, and so it, it takes both somebody who is knowledgeable about youth programming and has really good group facilitation skills and a sensitivity to community dynamics. But it takes somebody also who has the ability to be responsive and to listen and to be in tune enough with the room to know when to bracket the program that we've laid out to allow for the young people in the space to process together something that's really on their mind. Um, so it takes, you know, a combination of skill and commitment and responsiveness and in tuneness with the teenagers. And, you know, we've been really fortunate to have Santa Sorensen on our program staff and Paul Fleischer. And we recently just hired a really wonderful new individual staff person, Rashida Edmondson, who brings a lot of that same spirit of compassion and skill in combination. Great. So kind of thinking through being responsive. So in the program setting, when, you know, they may be at like facilitating a group session, they need to be, staff need to be responsive, but also on like the larger scale, you know, you have your work plan set up for the year and then all of a sudden a crisis occurs in the country or, you know, things like the, you know, shootings at the high schools or everything going on right now with immigration. How do you pivot and, you know, make a statement on the current issues, but then also stay true to your plan for the year? (laughs) We just work really hard. (laughs) That is a constant tension. We always have a plan for the year. For example, this year, a major area of focus was um, gun violence, mobilizing people against gun violence in the aftermath of the Parkland, uh, Florida shootings. Did a lot of that. And yet it's been a year where crisis after crisis has presented itself from the targeting of immigrants to the crisis locally we had around questions on Monument Avenue to the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville and the aftermath we faced here in Richmond. And so we are constantly pivoting Mm -hmm. and keeping our eye on the long-term ball, but then convening short-term temporary working groups of volunteers in to help us organize X rally or Y response or Z meeting with the Monument Avenue Commission. And our staff is the through line and it's our staff with board oversight that knows there's a consensus around really what our core priorities are for the year and you just keep your eye on that long-term prize, pivot, (laughs) and then pivot back and try not to fire like try not to wander too far off track. But I think at this moment, we have to be responsive. We have to have the ability to do both, to pursue our long-term goals and to respond when we need to. Yeah. So when there is, you know, a crisis to respond to, do you have a set of go-to tactics? So for instance, something occurs and you feel that, and, you know, RPEC has a stance on it, so you need to make a statement. Do you write a press release and send it to, you know, X number of newspapers? Do you then, you know, organ- call the rally your volunteers together to set up a march? And then, you know, is there like kind of like a workflow almost of how to respond when there's a crisis so that the response is quick and timely, um, but also a, it's almost like second nature at some point? <laughs> We have a repertoire of things that we know we do well. And yes, we will do a blog post statement. We sometimes will collect petition responses on a statement. 
we will do a press release and yes like numerous times we have organized or co-organized a variety of different public actions including nonviolent marches and rallies and we have folks internally both on the board and on our in our volunteer network and on the staff who are trained and well equipped to do all of those things and we are constantly trying to refresh our tactics and we don't want to get stale and um we also sometimes do kind of training in creative new tactics and mm-hmm. want to be experimenting, you know, and to make sure that while we have our go-to approaches that we were also experimental and creative and, and uh, continue to be a relevant voice. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So you kind of have trainings on different tactics, hone your skills on these different tactics so that when a big issue occurs, you can say, go do X, Y, Z. We're not going to do ABC. Yeah, we do. Very cool. Just for example, in the aftermath of the Parkland, Florida shootings, the Peace Center has worked with youth on violence prevention and we've mobilized youth to work on gun reform for like for more than a decade. So Mm -hmm. that's something that we've been doing for a very long time in the Richmond community. That being said, we recognize the Parkland Florida tragedy as a moment that we needed to remobilize and ramp up. Mm-hmm. And so we immediately filed the permit request to confirm the state capitol, so the bell tower outside the state capitol. So we were the first organization to go and reserve the state capitol space in anticipation that we would want to do some sort of a march or rally there, even before we really had anything planned. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And then we kind of articulated our course statement in response to Parkland, and we started to reach out to different local partners who also wanted to do something. And it was an interesting moment because another group from the suburbs, before we had publicly announced our march, another group from the suburbs announced a march for Carytown, for a a neighborhood in, in Richmond. But then meanwhile, Richmond Public Schools called us and they said that they wanted to make an opportunity possible for all students and teachers to march against gun violence in the aftermath of Parkland, Florida on March for Our Lives, March 24th. And they had contacted the state capitol and learned from the state capitol that the Peace Center already had the, <laughs> the file the permit request. Um, so we ended up talking with Richmond Public Schools, deciding to partner with them and jointly host with Richmond Public Schools a giant march and rally for March for Our Lives. And we invited in the suburban group who had planned a different March, not wanting to have two competing events. And it was just beautiful how all of these different entities ended up coalescing. And we had one united regional march um, on March 24th. Um, But the Peace Center was the organization that really had a lot of history and background in organizing marches and filing the permit requests and, uh, and the very deep connections with Richmond teenagers built on years and years and years of doing this work. So it just ended up being a beautiful partnership. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I love that, you know, the Richmond community has a resource to go to when there is an issue like that. Like, you know, if, if even if an individual or a group feels strongly on an issue, um, they may not know how to organize a march or, um, you know, how to even file a permit. <laughs> so it's nice that this group can serve as that resource, not only as a resource to learn about it, but also to like literally do it and organize everything. That's really great. So I will wrap it up with one last question that I have to ask everyone. I think, in my opinion, nonprofit work can be, um, it can be draining. You know, sometimes you work with really tough situations and you work day in and day out to hopefully make a change in the world and the vision that you have, may, you may never see it in your lifetime, you know, especially something like peace, which is, um, you know, 
can definitely be, um, it can be discouraging to feel like you're doing all this work and you don't see any changes. So what do you do for self-care? I drink a lot of chamomile tea. I exercise, (laughs) but I draw so much nourishment from the networks that I work with. I feel, you know, I'm the leader of this organization, but really the members and the other staff and the volunteers in a way buoy me or we buoy (laughs) one another. So I just draw, I draw so much comfort from feeling like I'm standing together with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other people in doing Mm -hmm. this work. There's just something about that that reinvigorates me at those moments that it gets hard because it certainly does get hard. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for all of your thoughtful answers and for being such a great resource for the community. Thank you so much, Sheila. (laughs) Before you go, do you know of an exceptional individual or organization that should be featured on the show? Please let us know. Send your suggestions to podcast at thirdsuite.com. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week.